0: He is mighty in love. He is mighty in grace. He is mighty in mercy. He is mighty in forgiveness. He is mighty in reconciling us. And he and he alone is able to take the pieces of a broken life and put it back together and then enable us to live out our faith day by day in the messiness and distraction of daily living. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Isaiah chapter 9. And we're reading verses 2 through verse 6 over the last couple of Sundays together, we have been steadily working our way through this passage in Isaiah. And today, of course, as you know, is the second Sunday of Advent. And so we're looking at the title, Mighty God. Begin in verse 2. The prophet Isaiah writes these words, and you'll find it page 10721072. 1072. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. 700 years before the birth of Christ, God is speaking to Isaiah. And he is giving him the inspired words for Isaiah to write down. And Isaiah writes down, for to us, a child will be born. And he goes on to say what? To us, a son is given, and he will be wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying. This morning, as we come to look at mighty God, even when we were reading it, I wonder if somewhere in the back of your mind, you were kind of interrupting yourself by saying, now, hold on a second, mighty God? The child to be born is Lord God Almighty. Is that what Isaiah is telling us? Because if that's what Isaiah is telling us, that gives us thought for pause. And it gives us thought for pause in a number of ways. Because on a Sunday morning when we have a baptism, or other occasions when we recite together the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Doesn't the Old Testament teach about the oneness of God, His singularity? Doesn't it have what theologians call a monotheistic focus throughout the Old Testament? And it absolutely does. And some of you are already mentally ahead of me here because you are saying, Richard, not only is Isaiah one of the major prophets along with Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel, you are saying that when he is writing this, Isaiah knows all of that. So, is he introducing a second God? Is that what's happening here? Because if he's introducing a second God, there's a problem because the Ten Commandments begin with a focus on one God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. And now it seems as if Isaiah is introducing a second God. What is going on here? Surely that's a contradiction. Well, Old Testament quite clearly has a monotheistic focus does talk, as we said moments ago, of the singularity of the oneness of God. And it does seem as if Isaiah is sneaking in another God, someone who's yet to be born. How can he be God if he's yet to be born? What is going on here? Isn't it that self-contradictory note? Well, not only is Isaiah one of the five major prophets of the Old Testament— Isaiah delights to write of God in terms of his magisterial splendor. God, as sublime, so different, so utterly holy and righteous, perfect. What is it we say? Not only is he infinite, not only is he eternal, He's also unchanging in his being, his character, his truth, his wisdom, his power, his holiness, his righteousness, his love. Is Isaiah really saying all of that is to be wrapped up in this baby still to be born? Remember, as Christian people, We have an obligation as we study and read and engage with Isaiah to understand it. Because what Isaiah delights to do is this. Isaiah shows for us and portrays to us God as he truly is. Not as we would like him to be. Not as others have told us he might be. Neither do we get to create God in our own image, as I would never stand for that, because He is eager for us to know Him as He truly is. That's why last Sunday was Wonderful Counselor. That's why today He is, we are focusing on Mighty God. But the intellectual problem is this. How can God Almighty be two. How is that possible? Well, if that's where you are in your mind, come with me please, put a marker in Isaiah chapter 9 and flick over to John's Gospel. And we're going to spend the rest of our time there this morning. And you'll find it on page 1645, page 1645. And you'll need that text open in front of you. And John begins his Gospel in a radically different manner from any of the gospel writers. And John begins with familiar words. He starts his, his gospel the same way as the first book of the Bible. Genesis starts in the beginning, God. And John intentionally writes... In the beginning was the word. And the reason John starts with those three words, in the beginning, is this. John is writing in his early 90s. He has had 60 to 65 years after the death of Christ to think about how he will begin his gospel. And he does it quite intentionally. And he's saying to his readers, think back to Genesis. Think back to all of the creative, sustaining power of God who spoke and creation was made in the beginning. And that will give you a sense of what I'm about to tell you. And so you come to John's gospel full of anticipation, full of expectation, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God in the beginning. When you think of God, think of His Word as as close to Him as it is possible to get in a deep, face-to-face, intimate relationship. You couldn't get sheet of paper between them. That's the point he's making. In the beginning was the Word. And when you think of God, think of the Word as well. Visualize them in your mind. And then he takes it a step further. And notice what he says next. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then he adds, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Now, there is no misunderstanding here. There's no second interpretation. Look at it again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. God Himself. He was with God in the beginning. And what we're about to see here in the rest of John's gospel is this, that the right's The privileges, the authority attributed to God alone are also given to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that gives us pause for thought because we're asking ourselves, how can the Almighty and one to be born be one in the same person? Let me give you a quick history lesson here. Please forgive me for this. We're going to go a little deeper and we may get so deep that we're moving to places you don't necessarily want to be in a Sunday morning because it can get a little confusing, but bear with me. In the year 325 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine called what is broadly known as the first ecumenical council of the church. The Roman Empire was. Its heart was no longer Rome. It was in Constantinople, modern-day Turkey. If you've ever been to Istanbul, that's where it took place. And out of that gathering came what we know as the Nicene Creed. We recite the Apostles' Creed regularly, not so much the Nicene Creed, but it's very much a creed of the church. And this is how they began, because they answered the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? How do we define him? That was the issue of the day. Constantine got the bishops together and said, make it clear. And they said this, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ. They then went on to say, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is of the essence of the Father, the substance of the Father. Two or one, that's the point they were making. Of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God. These are the attributes of Jesus himself. And they go on and say he was begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And if you have your Bible open this morning at John's Gospel, if you take notes, and occasionally I will do it, but I treat my Bible, as you can imagine, with incredible uh, reverence, and I ought to, and I'm very careful what I put in it, but if you take notes, put in your Bible this morning, or jot in your notes, when you are thinking of God, it's helpful to understand Him in the classical theological language and term of God is one in essence and three in person. Now, why do we say that? Why do we believe that? Because that's what the Scripture teaches. When Isaiah said, he is wonderful counselor, he is mighty God. He wasn't using hyperbole. He wasn't exaggerating for effect. He was reflecting what the eternal purposes and redemptive plans of God were, that God himself would come into this world. That was the point he was making. Jesus is what? God is one in essence and three in person. So we have Father As creator, we have Son as redeemer, and we have Spirit as the one who indwells. Do you remember back in the book of Acts in the fall when we spent several Sundays looking at the impact of the Holy Spirit? What did we say? We said the same power that brought Christ back from the dead, the same moral and supernatural spirit now dwells within us. Why? Because when we hear the gospel and God touches our hearts, He opens our eyes, He renews and transforms the soul, and He breathes spiritual life into us, we what? We become born again, and the Holy Spirit takes up dwelling within us. So, Father, Son, and Spirit, one in essence, and we know them, of course, as three in persons. Now, when folks say to us, Richard, the church is self-contradictory, you end up believing in three gods, we say, no, one in essence, three in persons. If we were saying three in essence and three in persons, we'd end up with three gods. But the Scripture doesn't teach that. It teaches one God one in essence, one in substance, very God of very God, true light of true light, but three in persons. In other words, we know him through Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, let me pause for a second, and let me try and bring you back up from the deep. That's what, that's what Isaiah is telling us. I need you to pay attention, because what I'm about to say is, to say the least, more than a little controversial. And I may, in fact, have to ask your forgiveness if I get a little excited. So please bear with me. If you've got a seatbelt, this is the time to put it on, okay? So that's where we're going. Over the last three to four months, as a nation, we have faced some incredibly difficult and challenging days. Natural disasters, hurricanes, and now, of course, forest fires in Southern California. When families sit down for Christmas dinner, a number of families will not have their entire family there because of these events. In addition to that, there have been acts of senseless violence in Las Vegas, And in First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas, there was a shooting in a school this past Wednesday or Thursday out west, I think New Mexico. Violence, chaos, mayhem, it achieved nothing and was utterly selfish. Achieved nothing. Think of the hurt and pain those families will be going through and for no good reason. Over the last three to four weeks, Hollywood personalities, television news anchors, television personalities, senators and congressmen have resigned from their jobs, because of inappropriate behavior in a working environment. Now what on earth has that to do with Isaiah chapter nine? Well, here is the connection. Whenever we think of the Advents leading up to or the Advent Sundays leading up to Christmas, whenever we think of Isaiah chapter nine, Malachi, and other passages in Zephaniah in the Old Testament that prophesy the coming of Christ. Quite naturally, we gravitate to the comfort and joy and the incredible inspiration and the hope that comes from the Christmas story. There is nothing to compare it with. But when Isaiah talks of mighty God... Isaiah is telling us this. When the weeks leading up to Christmas try to grasp the enormity of all that Scripture teaches, do we capture the joy? Do we capture the comfort? Do we capture the love and grace and goodness of Almighty God coming to earth? Absolutely, and we should, and we need to rejoice in it. But the Scriptures also teach this, that God came into this world to bring salvation to individual men and women, real people living real lives. And He does it by exposing us to His love. And when he exposes us to the light of his love, John captures it in the next couple of verses when he says this in verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And why has the darkness not understood it? For this reason... Because sin, the essence, the substance of sin is this it intoxicates, it tranquilizes, it is seductive, it is a healing, and when Hollywood producers, when television personalities, when senators and congressmen, members of the most powerful body in this nation, succumb to sin, what happens? It is attractive, and it is appealing, and it tells them that they are large and in charge, and what they are doing is not wrong. Everyone's doing doing it. That's how culture is these days. And it makes them feel satisfied and fulfilled when they exert power and control over others. That's the process. But understand this, when the light of God's love comes into our world, that light shines on the darkness and it shines on the toxicity and the corrosive nature of sin and sin doesn't want it and it feels the pressure and it cannot wait to shift the spotlight somewhere else but the spotlight isn't shifting. For 45 and 50 years we have been told again and again and again and again by the culture and our media and society that the gospel is irrelevant, archaic it's old fashioned, it's out of touch, and then when moral and spiritual standards slip and end up in chaos and public pain and shame, they are surprised. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Now the Congress is putting in place a training workshop to teach senators and congressmen how to behave in the office. What on earth is going on? On the one hand, I applaud them for it and say thank you for taking action. But did your parents never have that conversation with you growing up? Didn't they tell you how to behave? Didn't they tell you what you should do and shouldn't do? And when those moral and spiritual values are minimized and marginalized, that's what we end up with. Now, folks, please hear me when I say this, and I need to be so careful, because pastors and deacons and elders in the past have behaved the same way. The same way. So we don't get to point the finger entirely, but what we do get to say is this, there are moral and spiritual standards And when we crash and burn and fall, and when we find ourselves publicly ashamed, or when we find ourselves the victim, and please do not forget those who are on the receiving end of this, how will they ever put their lives back together? We steadfastly hold on to the truth of Scripture that teaches us this Not only did mighty God come into our world, He is mighty in love. He is mighty in grace. He is mighty in mercy. He is mighty in forgiveness. He is mighty in reconciling us. And He and He alone is able to take the pieces of a broken life and put it back together and then enable us to live out our faith day by day in the messiness and distraction of daily living. Because our culture tells us the opposite. Our culture tells us this, it is easier to neglect a child than raise that child. It tells us it's easier to steal than earn a living. It's telling us that double standards when it comes to morality is okay. And the gospel tells us it isn't. And when the love of God shines upon our sin, it is uncomfortable and unnerving. But understand this, it is always, always, always healthy and it leads to repentance. Repentance and renewal and a new beginning. And that's why Isaiah said, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And he is wonderful counselor. And he is mighty God. Mighty God. In the course of the next 10 or 12 days, Somewhere on television, we will see an advertisement that says this. A tie for dad, $50. Perfume for mom, $75. And then it will say, MasterCard, priceless. Let me change that and say this. A tie for dad, given with love, priceless. Perfume for mom, given with prayerful thanks for who she is, priceless, mighty God, eternal, loving, gracious, majestic, transforming in power, priceless. And when a nation gets on its knees and moves away from indifference and apathy and engages the wonder of Christmas. There is no telling what he can do with us. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this remarkable passage of Scripture. Thank you for the challenge it brings to us, for the comfort, the joy. But most of all, thank you for coming into our world, drawing us to yourself, indwelling us with your spirit. Cleanse us, forgive us, and enable us, please, to submit and surrender to the rule of mighty God in our lives each day. Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Join us on Christmas Eve for our morning service at 830 and children's service at 11. In the evening, we'll have a candlelight service at 6 and a watch night service at 11. More details at firstpresschristmas.com.